This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Terbish. Welcome back from the break. I'm Christian Terbish, and this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Today we're talking about the police force and law enforcement. In the first half of the show, I interviewed Scott Thompson, the chief of the Camden County Police Force. If you have missed the first half of the show, you can go on workoftomorrow.com to find this episode and all episodes of the show. Now, at this point, it's my great pleasure to welcome my second guest, that is Brian McDonald. Brian is the CEO of Predpol, a market leader in predicting policing. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Christian. How are you? Brian, what is predictive policing? Well, predictive policing really refers to a wide range of technologies and approaches to bring uh, data and analytics into into policing. Uh, We're focused on a pretty narrow uh, segment of that market, which is predicting where and when specific crimes are most likely to occur. Uh, There are some other programs out there that uh, try to predict uh, uh, who offenders will be, uh, re-offenders, or who's likely to violate, say, uh, bail conditions. Uh, we don't get involved in any of these. We're really focused on, on what you call the what, where, and when of crime. So crime type, uh, crime location, and uh, crime date and time. So what, where, and when? It's, so it's really geospatial modeling with, with, with big data combined, right? Yeah, uh, plus temporal modeling as well. Um, you know, the uh, tradition up until now, what departments would use is uh, an approach called heat mapping, which is, you know, you can put all your crimes on a map and you you look at the densest part of the map, the reddest part of the heat map, as it were. And if you direct your resources there, you're going to get to some of the crime. Uh, but the problem is heat maps are created on seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day data. It's not going to tell me where crimes are most likely to appear today on a Monday, April 29th in April. So uh, the crimes that might occur today might be very different from the ones that will appear tonight or that appeared yesterday. Now, uh, here in Philadelphia, uh, Brian, I can tell you that this afternoon there will be probably over a thousand cars driving down our expressway that are either speeding, texting while driving or or doing both. Uh, Predicting Uh that seems relatively simple, Uh, but I guess you do a lot more than simple statistics. So so what type of use cases do you have in mind? So a good one would be auto theft. So uh, there, you know, there are some people who will randomly steal a car occasionally, but there are also fairly well-organized auto thieves or groups of auto thieves. So what will happen is um, if you're a guy who steals cars for a living, uh, you'll find your happy hunting ground. You'll know that there's a good neighborhood, a good time of day. That you can go in, grab a car. There's not going to be a lot of nosy neighbors around, not going to be a lot of police patrols. So once you've kind of found that, that hunting spot, you're, you're likely to go back to that spot over and over again at a similar time on a similar day of the week. What we can do is we can find those patterns in the data, those kind of clusters of crime activity, and try to interdict that. So you have an officer rolling through there every time the guy's looking to go steal a car. Uh, what you're doing is just re- increasing the risk side of that risk-reward equation. What is hard about that? I mean, it, it strikes me that for those events, like an auto theft, 
you're dealing with really small probability events, right? If, you, if I combine the where and the when, like a patrol in my area tonight between 6 and 8, 8 p.m., the baseline of an auto theft is probably like one in, I am making up that number, one in 10,000, one in 100,000. Uh, what, what type of baselines do you have in mind when you run your, your prediction models? Well, a good way to look at our predictive effectiveness, effectiveness is, is to look at it uh, compared to traditional heat mapping. And you could look at um, uh, using using that model with heat mapping. If you pick an area, and we go to pretty small areas, we go to 150 by 150-meter boxes is our defined sort of target area. Um, so with heat mapping, you can get to um, – about four times, four acts of risk factor. So what that means is, is that if, you, if you're using heat mapping, you would say that the, you know, the boxes I've selected are roughly, have roughly four times higher risk of, of auto theft than a randomly selected box elsewhere in the city. Using PredPol, you, you will drive that, that risk number much higher. Uh, we're anywhere from uh, 20 to, we've seen even in some cases, over 1,000 times more likely uh, for crimes to appear in PredPol boxes than uh, a box randomly selected for, uh, from throughout the city. So these patterns do occur, um, and they occur with enough regularity, enough predictability that our software is, is you know, quite effective at, at rooting those out. So, Brian, without going too deep into the statistics, but I'm just kind of trying to visualize some form of a prediction model where you're, the outcome is a crime is going to happen at time T in, in, in cluster, in location I, and you have a bunch of covariates that are basically now having predictive power. What, what are the most common patterns, the most relevant covariants that you find in your research that predict the next occurrence with, in, in both a spatial as well as in a temporal way? But by covariance, you mean you know, other data, data sources that we could use, like weather or... Weather uh, or proximity yeah. of a hi recent history of crime or uh, weather or abnormal <clears throat> traffic or what have you? Well, what we found, actually, we, we've looked at a bunch of other different variables that we've tried to plug in over the years. And all they do is, is introduce more noise into the predictions. Um, we've... What we found really is that using just three simple data points, uh, the the crime data almost speaks for itself. So when we uh, set up with an agency, we'll actually set up a feed to their their crimes database, and we pull out uh, just a, a, set, a very small subset of data. So it's crime type, crime location, crime date and time, and then we also pull the docket number just so that we make sure we're not getting duplicate crimes. <clears throat> but that's it. Nothing about the offender. Nothing about the victim. Nothing about demographics or poverty rates or uh, you know anything about the neighborhood or the any kind of personally, personally identifiable information. And what we found is if you get a big enough data set over a long enough period of time, the, the crime will actually uh, the patterns develop in a way that is over time predictable. Part of it's the behavior of individual offenders. Other parts of it are just environmental drivers. You'll have certain parts of the city. Uh, that are more prone to crime because there are certain crime drivers there. A Walmart parking lot is a good example. Uh, bus stations, high schools, there are certain uh, types of crimes that may cluster around those different locations. And without even knowing that uh, this, this spot on a map is a Walmart park, parking lot, if I look at a, a year's worth of data, I could probably pick it out uh, just by the kind of crimes that we're seeing happening there. 
So there are some leading indicators, some predictors like the proximity of a Walmart parking spot who make an area always more prone to crime. And then there are others like uh, how many car thefts happened in that kind of in, in that in that cluster of 150 times 150 meters yesterday that is also sh- carrying some predictive power? Yeah, so we, we get, you know, we train the system on about, we usually like to get five years of data, uh, crime data for the city. Um, we can use as, as little as one or two years, but generally up to about five years is best beyond that. You, you, it's, it's not that relevant. Um, but our model is self-learning, so it goes through those five years of data, finds the patterns, uh, you know, the, the, the geographical drivers, environmental drivers, you might call them, as well as the, the near-term clusters. And then each day we refresh that with uh, new data. So uh, each day we get another feed of all the, the what, where, when data from the agency we work with. It goes back in the system. It retrains itself again, and then we'll give the following day's predictions. Now, interesting. I, I've done some predictive modeling myself with, with PhD students here at Wharton. We, we typically look at healthcare settings and trying to predict with, with which patients are going to get sick and get readmitted to the hospital. And mm-hmm. we can predict, just like you described, I mean, you can certainly increase prediction accuracy compared to a baseline very dramatically, but you still have to make a decision once you know that there is a patient at risk being readmitted. You still have the so what, right? What action do I trigger? You have to mm-hmm. trigger the, the, you have to balance the cost of sending a police car to an area where there's not going to be a crime. Again, the base rate, I guess, is, is so low that in most cases you're sending a car and nothing's going to happen, versus then on the other hand, if you miss something, you also kind of look like a fool. So how, how do you balance those, those two costs, right? It's not just ultimately, it's not just about prediction. It's also about making decisions. Do you, should you dispatch the, the vehicle or not? Uh-huh. Well, one thing to remember is that with, um, with police or, or sheriff's deputies, they, they really have two main jobs, at least the guys on patrol do. One is to respond to calls for service. So if there's an emergency call uh, for a car crash or a bank robbery, they'll respond to that. Uh, but when they're not answering calls for service, they're told to go patrol. Mm-hmm. And and by patrolling, the goal of patrolling is to prevent crime from happening by your presence, uh, looking out for bad guys, uh, engaging with the community, and so on. So there's already time allotted for patrol. Uh, in, in every agency. What we're doing is we're telling them on the time that you're spent patrolling, this is going to be where you're going to be the most effective um, because the other approach is just driving. In fact, I was talking to a large uh, sheriff's uh, agency out here on the West Coast about three weeks ago, and I, I asked uh, a senior command staff, a woman in the command staff, uh, what's your patrol strategy right now for your deputies? And she says, uh, just drive around. Mm-hmm. That's all the guidance that they get, just go drive around. So you've got to be able to do something better than that. I mean, we're, we're in the 21st century. People are using data for health care, for uh, finance, for really everything. Um, why wouldn't you apply that same kind of uh, rigor and uh, uh, data and analytics to policing as well? So interesting. So, so your, your argument is basically the baseline is random. And so everything that we do yes. better than randomness in some sense, has, I, I buy that argument. Um, now, Brian, uh, forecasting probability is, is a very famous area of, of research. Actually, several of my colleagues here at Wharton have really done 
contributed to this this area of study. Um, Now, it turns out that almost all professions, especially doctors, actually, are really bad dealing with probabilities. Uh, The only exception is is the weather forecaster, right, which was really good because they get feedback and calibration all the time. Uh, As you were describing your approach, I was wondering if there's a little bit of a dilemma, like almost like a Heisenberg phenomenon here in the sense that by the by dispatching the officer to the area where you're predicting something to happen, you're making the likelihood of the happening less likely. And, and so it's, it's really hard for you to know whether you were right or, you, or whether you sent the, uh, you sent the uh, officer for no good reason. It's very hard to learn in these, in these settings. Yeah, absolutely. And, and using Heisenberg is a great way to kind of frame that. Um, you can't prove that if, if crimes go down, you can't prove that you're the reason the crimes went down. Um, you know, it could be, you know, crime rates went up throughout the 70s, 80s, kind of peaked in the early 90s, and then they've been on a long decline since then. Nobody is really sure why they went up um, during that period, and, and um, nobody's really sure why they went down. I read an article recently that gave, I think, 16 different theories for why crime has declined. The only one that they uh, came up with that actually had any kind of uh, seemed to correlate well was uh, the use of um, uh, something called CompStat, which is the use of um, using you uh, basically measuring crime rates on a weekly basis and managing the department against the rate of crime. Um, so you know a little bit of analytics actually seems to help the, the department fighting crime. Um, you, the, the, so you can't we can never prove that it's because of predpol that crime has gone down. Um, We've seen very strong correlation between usage of PredPol and crime reduction. We also did a, a study in L.A. where they patrolled some areas with heat maps, other areas with PredPol, and crime went down significantly, about 7 to 8% in PredPol areas, and was more or less unchanged in the heat map-based patrol areas. Um, so, yeah, and there are other factors come to play. A lot of times agencies will roll out PredPol as well as several other initiatives right around the same time. If crime goes down, it's great. Everybody benefits. <clears throat> but sometimes it's hard to trace the, those results back to you know, the specific program that reduced the crime. Yeah, interesting. I guess uh, here the academic speaking, from a research perspective, what you ideally wanted is to have instances where your PredPol algorithm was predicting something to happen, but for capacity shortages, you didn't have a vehicle and officer available to be dispatched and see in those instances whether you're better than the counterfactual of basically uh, having mm-hmm. having no algorithm. Right? That would be in some sense the best proof for your technology. Yeah, and we actually do have an in-house package that we use that was built by our chief scientists where we can grab five years of a, of a department's data and analyze it and then come back to them and say, yes, we're very confident that we can predict crime with your data because we'll actually kind of really run through, you know, five years of, of well, I think we train on the first <clears throat> three years of data and then we predict for each of the next two years sort of in real time kind mm-hmm. of, you know, making a prediction, checking that day's data, making a prediction, checking and and so on. Uh, running through two years of data, you know, within, you know, five or ten minutes. And that will give us a how many, what we call hit scores, how many crimes actually <clears throat> occurred in PredPol boxes. And that number is, is usually quite high. So um, we, yeah, especially when you consider that our boxes cover a very small uh, percentage of the land area. So <clears throat> a typical deployment will have, say, three boxes per, per patrol officer. And that usually works out to about one-half of one percent. Uh, to 1% of the total land area of the city. 
So we predict over a very small area and we still catch uh, quite a high percentage of crime. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish. And Brian, I'm, I'm curious how you combine in the daily operations of uh, the, the policing, how do you combine your algorithm and its forecast with the intuitions, the, the years of experience from the, the experts? How do you marry the subjective decision-making of the expert with the algorithm? Yeah, that, and that's always a challenge when you go in, especially the departments who've got some senior veterans there who they say, I know my, my, yeah. my neighborhood, I know where the crime is. Um, and generally the, the way you can kind of bring them around is you say, okay, great, you, do you know your top three spots for robberies? And, of course, they do. And they say, okay, do you know your top three spots uh, for robberies on a Monday? Do you know your top three spots for Monday on the over uh, for robberies? On a Monday overnight shift, the more granular you get, the more uncertain their their uh, their own sort of internal predictions are going to be. And then, um, what are your your top three hotspots for residential burglary for auto theft? Because these things all occur in different parts of the city, and they occur at different days of the week and different times of the day, and even different seasons of the year. So they've got a good kind of intuitive hunch on it's kind of a mental heat map on where crimes occur, but it's um, it's got a lot of um, it, it's kind of very broad brush, and it is it's in intuition and you know by its very nature it's subjective. We don't what we don't want to do is kill the skills and intuition of the officer because mm-hmm. that's that's what they bring to play when they patrol. But what we can do is tell them you're going to be most effective at applying all your years of, of police experience. You'll be most effective if you go to these three locations on your shift tonight. Yeah, that's so interesting. Going yeah. Vehicle yeah. Especially given, I think, what I mentioned earlier on that, I mean, just research shows that over and over people have found that professionals are not good at dealing with probabilities. And so I guess having yeah. uh, having a software like yours makes makes a ton of sense. Now, um, Brian, uh, there's a lot of talk these days in academia, in the press, about unintended consequences of AI. Uh, especially the concern that AI automates biases against racial groups, against kind of uh, any form of ethnicities, sexual preferences, or other things. Now, you mentioned from the uh, the get-go that you're not predicting who is going to commit a crime, but are those concerns, are, are those issues relevant in, in your work as well? It, yeah, it's, it's, it's relevant in, in every area of policing, with, you know, with or without technology. It's a, you know, big, it's a, been a big part of the national debate now for, for many, many years. Um, and it's been really kind of uh, uh, amplified in the last, I'd say, five years or so. So part of the reason Predpol was formed was actually to make policing more objective and fair. So what we try to do is we, only, we try to use only data uh, that can be as objective as possible. So we only use victimization information. Uh, that's why we use uh, verified crime reports. We'll, you know, if someone gets their car stolen, they'll call the police, say, my car stolen last night between you know, midnight and 8 a.m. They, they show up, they file a report. That goes in the system. That uh, is, is good, clean, usable data. Uh, what we don't use is things like arrest data. Uh, arrest data is going to be officer-initiated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a guy might get arrested on one side of town for committing a crime on the other side of town or in another state altogether. So that data is not relevant to us. The other thing is we, we've restricted the kind of crime types that we'll predict for. So some crimes generally require officer initiation um, 
to to make them a crime. So uh, there might be three guys on the corner hanging around. Policeman drives by, doesn't do anything. Or what if he stops? He starts questioning. He decides he's going to. Uh, he's got some probable cause. He first one of them is carrying, uh, you know, weed, uh, and it's illegal in that state. And they arrest him. Um, that's a pure officer initiation. There's no data that he used or she used to to make that arrest. Um, and so we. That's why we keep away from drug crimes altogether. Um, any any crime that requires. Uh, the officer to um, decide that a crime is being committed, we exclude from our predictions just because it, it, it introduces a, an element of subjectivity that, that hurts our data, we think. Uh, Brian, this is business radio, and so we sometimes do talk about money. Um, uh-huh. How do you guys make money? So we, we run our platform as a software as a service. So it's, uh, we've got it hosted up on uh, Amazon uh, government cloud. So it's a highly secure uh, infrastructure. Um, it's something called CGIS compliant, which is an FBI standard for uh, law enforcement data. Um, and we charge based on department size. So we have different tiers of departments. Um, you know, if you have up to a hundred officers, it's one price, 100 to 250, it's another price and so on. So they, they pay us an annual fee up front. They've got unlimited access, unlimited training, unlimited support. So it's kind of a, a, a single price, uh, easy to budget for. And um, uh, most of our customers will sign you know, three years up front and then renew annually. Is there any element of uh, paying for performance, any benefit for when you do your job really well? Do you get any kind of premium for your forecasting accuracy? Uh, no, we haven't. We haven't built that in the bottle, it, and it's kind of hard to tell because is it what you know? How do you determine success? Is it based on our? You know, if we predict a lot of crimes that actually occur in boxes, then that means the officers didn't catch those mm-hmm. crimes. Uh, if crime rates go down, it's not necessarily due to pred pull. It could be due to us or an environmental driver or, or some of the program that they're running. So that we found that just makes contracts a lot trickier. And when you're dealing with city governments, um, it's you don't want to introduce a lot of complexity into your contracting process. I assume also that the data that you collect as part of those operations, you're not allowed to use for anything else. You cannot turn around and sell it to a property insurance or an auto insurance. Yeah, yeah that's correct. Yeah, um, it's uh, but you know a lot of that data is now available through open data portals as well. I think that we we get a you know probably a rarefied, cleaner subset of that data. Um, but, yeah, we don't sell that to uh, insurance companies or private security firms. We will occasionally, we're talking to a, a potential customer in the Midwest who actually is working with that city's police department. So we're going to try to integrate the city police data and then the private security firm's data into a single uh, data set for predictions. But that's only when both sides have agreed that their data can be shared. Now, with that capability, Brian, what other adjacent markets might be of interest for you? I mean, given that you've developed that algorithm, that the technology of, of marrying the geospatial modeling with, with big data, um, are there any other markets where you have a eye on and say, like, that would be kind of interesting for us? Yeah, well, private security is one. Uh, we're actually working with a large American oil company right now, uh, securing an oil field for them uh, outside the U.S. where they've had a lot of uh, sabotage and theft. And... Um, we went live with them uh, at the end of January, and their incident rate uh, is down by 
I think, on sabotage by 80%, on theft by 65%. So they've had some really compelling uh, results in a very short period of time. Um, and then the, the other industry that, that's potentially of interest is, is insurance. Uh, I've been talking to some insurance companies. They, they also collect the sort of what, where, when data that we need, you know, theft. You know, it's, let's say it's uh, auto theft. It's, you know, it's, it's the same what, where, when that the police collect. Um, but we're um, finding we're looking to find a rich enough data set. It's got to be sort of geographically condensed and temporally condensed in order for our algorithm to make accurate predictions. Now, this is an area where the last five to ten years have just seen massive uh, improvements. Uh, fast forward for another ten years, and what is going to change next? You think, uh, Brian? Well, yeah, I think crime rates are going to continue to go down, and um, the that's been the long driver, you, you, you do see some occasional upticks. We've seen some upticks here in California due to some, um, probably due to some laws that, that were passed that, that reduced penalties for certain kinds of crimes. So I think people feel a little more empowered uh, to do this. I think that police um, are increasingly, and we're, we're certainly, we're seeing this in our agencies, they're increasingly moving from the kind of the warrior uh, to the social worker. Uh, there are a lot of issues that they deal with now that are not Uh, you know, crimes, uh, homelessness, um, addiction. Um, they, you know, drug use may be a crime, but being addicted itself is is really a public health problem that needs to be solved. So I think that you're going to we're seeing we're seeing more and more law enforcement kind of uh, agencies kind of building out that kind of um, uh, really almost, almost call it caseworker, social worker side of the. Uh, of the of the job spec, and uh, we hope to be able to work with them to help them apply their efforts to you know um, address some of these other issues like uh, drug addiction. We we we've got one agency where we're actually two agencies now where we're predicting uh, the likelihood of overdoses uh, throughout the city, and that's not so they can go out and arrest people, but it's so they can uh, make sure that the guys who patrol that area have all got Narcan. Uh, maybe they work with county health to bring in some. Uh, some uh, additional help support. Maybe they work with faith-based organizations to help them target certain neighborhoods. So we see there, as their job expands, we're uh, using data to uh, predict for some of these other sort of elements of human misery uh, that we can try to help address with them. Says Brian McDonald, the CEO of Predwall. Thank you so much, Brian. We've reached the end of the show for today. You've been listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM. Let me thank our sound expert, Daniel Bruno, and my producer, Matt Dads, for their wonderful support. We hope you can join us again this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Christian Tevich, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.